We are taking a break from the one that we were looking at, the red-covered book about the dynamic heart. And um, to start out the new year, we're going to finish the last section of this book, Habits of Grace, the section that talks about fellowship. And so uh, this is actually chapter 12 of this blue and white book that I've mentioned to you before. It's uh, called Habits of Grace by David Mathis, and it goes over three main ideas. One is the idea of uh, that we possess God's Word, we need to know it, hear it, think about it, apply it, memorize it, all those sorts of ideas. The second part is that because we have access to God, that He hears us, we ought to come before Him in prayer. We talked about some of the different things connected with that. And now we're going to talk about the third way in which God ministers grace to us in the church, and that is through fellowship, through gathering and being with His people. First quote you have there, the koinonia, the Greek for commonality, partnership or fellowship that the first Christians shared wasn't anchored in a common love for pizza pop and a nice clean evening of fun among the fellow churchified. That's sort of our idea, maybe by default, in connection with Baptist churches. Gather for food, have a good time, don't swear, you know those sorts of ideas, right? But the essence of fellowship for the early church was their common Christ and their common life-or-death mission together in the summons to take the faith worldwide in the face of impending persecution. When we look at the experience of the early church, their gathering was in the context of um, people didn't like the fact that they were following Jesus, so their families would disown them. People didn't like the fact that they were following Jesus, and so they would take away their houses. They would throw them in jail. Some of them would be put to death in the later extreme uh, times of persecution. And so he says here, true fellowship is less like friends gathered to watch the Super Bowl and more like the players on the field in blood, sweat, and tears huddled in the backfield only in preparation for the next down. And to build on that further, think more high school football than the, than the Super Bowl, right? Because the Super Bowl, you sort of have an expectation, yeah, this team's going to, they're going to have to work a little bit, but they're going to win, Right? There were times for the early church when they were like the, the underdog in all of those movies about high school sports, right? They're not sure if they're going to win. They're, they're going through agony and putting their all into it. I mean, they know that they're supposed to win because that's what God has told them. But it doesn't look like it, right? Because they're surrounded by persecution, going through difficulty, needing God's help. Not only did the first Christians devote themselves to the Word, the apostles' teaching, and to prayer, but also to fellowship. Turn over to Acts chapter 1. Before the day of Pentecost, this looked like gathering in the upper room. For example, verse 13 of Acts 1, when they entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter, John, James, all the rest of the apostles. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So the, the smallest group was the apostles and Jesus' close family. And then the next verse, verse 15, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren. 
a gathering of about 120 persons. There was a slightly larger group that also gathered together. Um, but, you know, right after Jesus' uh, death and resurrection, we might have the idea that the church is thousands of people. It was a small group at the very beginning. Then all the events of the days of Pentecost happen in Acts chapter 2, and we have the sermon by Peter, the working of the Holy Spirit, and it says that there were some 3,000 saved, Acts chapter 2 and verse 41. Then we have the verse that was just mentioned, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Where were they gathering? What did this fellowship look like? Look at verse 46. Day by day, continue with one mind in the temple. So they're still gathering in the temple regularly and breaking bread from house to house. They're also gathering in smaller groups in people's homes, and they're taking their meals together, praising God, having favor with all the people. This is in the early days of the early church. What was this fellowship primarily based around? Again, this fellowship was not primarily based around the fact that they were of the same ethnic group, although at first the church was primarily Jewish. It was not based around the idea that they all liked to watch NASCAR. Because for one, it didn't exist, and for another, it was more than just a common bond of shared interest. Um, what was it based on? 1 Corinthians 1.9 talks about the fact that it is tied to Jesus. Let me read that for you. 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful through whom you are called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So why do we have fellowship with each other? Why do we have fellowship with each other? Yes. Right. Union with Christ is the reason we have union with one another. Think about what Paul talks about in Ephesians 2, which is actually... a a point that he's going to make in a moment. We'll get to that in just a moment, actually. The common bond was in Jesus Christ by the work of whom? By the work of the Spirit. So, um, later in 1 Corinthians, it says you're all baptized by one Spirit into one body. And so, in the structure of the church that God has established, God the Father purposed and planned it. Christ died to make it possible. On the basis of what Christ has done, the Holy Spirit connects us with all other Christians who genuinely possess salvation and broadly speaking we have this thing called the church that spans time and geography and all of those things and then more specifically we have the church gathered in specific fellowships in various places around the world and so there is a real and true sense in which this is the church right here right now and there's a real and true sense in which all of God's people gathered around the world collectively are also the church. Uh, there are some people that deny that second reality, but if the thing that unites us is Christ rather than primarily the building where we gather or all of those sorts of things, then we have to acknowledge that there is, there's two senses in which the Bible uses the word church, fellowship, or gathering. Some of the benefits that we have in Christ. Uh, someone want to read Romans 8.17? Okay, Bob. And then someone else, Ephesians 
Margaret? Go ahead, Bob. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be So if we're joined with Christ, what benefit do we receive from that joining? Salvation. And what other things was the verse saying? We're heirs with Christ. What things has God promised to Christ that we will share in? Think down the road kind of things. Right. Which is not to say that we're all sitting on the throne with Christ or anything like that, but rather that in Christ's victory, we also share in that victory. And in Christ, um, the peace that he brings to the entire world, we will benefit from that peace. Uh, Ephesians 1 and 2 go over a lot of these uh, blessings of salvation. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Margaret, would you read the verse from Ephesians 3, 6? Okay, so, and we'll talk more about that in just a moment, that it's not um, restricted just to the Jews, but also to Gentiles as well. What did this look like as things progressed in the early church? People began to be in need. There was opposition. Originally, there was primarily acceptance, and then a little bit later on, there was opposition, which meant that people had needs. How were those needs met in the early church? What's that? By each other, yeah. So it said they had all things in common. And so people will take that verse, they'll pull it in the context of today and political theories by people like Karl Marx and others, and they'll be like, well, see, that socialism. This is what's supposed to be. The difference between socialism as it's been conceived in the last 200 years and what we see in the early church is that the reason for sharing is not some sort of misguided vision that people are basically good and that this is a superior economic system to avoid class struggle. Instead, the reason for sharing was, if we together belong to Christ, then these people are my family and I will look after them in the same way I would look after my family. That's the difference. Family versus some sort of system imposed by above that inevitably becomes corrupt doesn't deliver on what was promised and results in everyone sharing poverty equally instead of everyone sharing wealth equally. Yes? Wasn't it also necessity? How so? Because they were essentially uh, kicked out of the synagogue. They were abandoned by their family. They They were persecuted. So they really didn't have a belonging in the Jewish culture anymore. Right. Yeah, and I think if we look at some of the um, some of the different features of, of the first century culture in Jerusalem and those sorts of areas, your livelihood, it wasn't like, I'm going to be an engineer or I'm going to work for this manufacturing company or whatever else. It was more like your work was connected with your family. Your family cuts you off. That cuts you off to some extent from your job as well. And so, yeah, they would have had to take care of one another. What was, the, what was the long-term result of extended persecution and extended generosity in Jerusalem? Like, like, where did they end up 20 years down the road? 
were they still able to, to, to sustain what we see in Acts 2 and 5 with the sharing and so forth? Well, they were scattered, but what else? What did Paul have to do? Paul raised money for them because the people who were there and helping, I mean, resources are finite, right? And so there had been this extended period of difficulty and persecution, particularly in and around Jerusalem and Judea, such that um, they were no longer able to help themselves. And so um, that's where instead of the sharing being simply restricted to a particular city, the sharing expands to the church world, worldwide in which there was opportunity for this church over here to help this church here and that church there to help this church here. And so um, without going too far off from what we want to focus on in this chapter, um, when our church has opportunity to help one of our missionaries with a project at their church, I think that's in the spirit of what Paul was trying to accomplish when he raised money to help the church at Jerusalem in a time of need. There are differences clearly between helping a church build a building and helping people in a church not starve. So I, I don't want to say it's exactly the same thing, but there are parallels between why we sometimes do special projects to help churches that we have connections with uh, and, and why those same sorts of things happen in the early church. So there is the, the core bond is connected with Christ. It's centered around truth. It is uh, part of an inheritance with Christ, both presently and looking forward to. It's sharing all things in common, and it's something that crosses ethnic boundaries. Ephesians 2.19, there, there was this wall between Jews and Gentiles. Think about the temple. And this is something that um, when I was talking with the eighth graders about it, that they seem to be amazed by every time. And it is a remarkable thing. You have the temple, right? You have an outer court. Um, so if I'm, I think I'm drawing this correctly. So you have Gentiles, women, men, and then you had kind of this inner court here. If you're a Gentile, how close can you get to God's presence in the temple? Not very, <laughs> right? Um, if you are a Jewish man who is crippled or blind or lame, technically the law only said you couldn't serve as a priest, but by extension it seems that the Pharisees had taken that to mean you couldn't even come into the, the inner court. So those same people, think about the lame man that Peter heals in Acts 3 or 4, right? He couldn't come in close to God's presence. He has the healing, now he can come closer. In the work that Christ accomplishes, not only is there a... Uh, and then if you were a Jewish woman, think about uh, it, Anna, the one that saw Christ. This is as close as she could ever get. Not through any fault of her own. And this was the other thing that when the eighth graders saw this, they're like, that's not fair. Why do they get to go here and they can only come here? Because that's the way that God set it up. But in Christ, what happens? Not only do these people get to come here and these people get to come here, we all have access to God in God's presence. This veil is torn down. 
So that's part of the fellowship that we have. And because we have that fellowship with Christ, that means that we also have fellowship with all these other people. And so for purposes of our standing before God, it does not matter if you are male or female, your ethnic background, your economic status, all of the things that in our societies throughout history have separated people into different categories, different groups, sometimes been the source of conflicts and, and, and problems. Those things in terms of standing before God don't exist in the church. Now when we step back out into the world, it doesn't mean that those things cease to exist. A slave still had to go back and work for his master the whole week long before they gathered again the next Sunday, right? It's not as though that immediately disappeared. But there was also the same reality that the slave and his master, um, Onesimus and Philemon, could gather in an assembly together and be on equal standing before God. So those are some of the background things with regard to fellowship. What is the purpose of the fellowship? Uh, turn over to Philippians 1. Someone read for us Philippians 1.5. Philippians 1.5. Okay, and if we back up a little bit, Paul's thanking God for them in verse 3, praying for them because of their participation in the gospel. So that word participation is the same word that in other places is translated fellowship. So the point of fellowship is not simply to gather because we gather because we're all connected in Christ, and that's where it stops. The point of it is to drive toward a particular goal, a partnership in the gospel. Um, someone read verse 12, please. Okay. Uh, Jim, do you want to do verse 25? Good. And then we go back to verse 7. It is only right for me to feel this way towards you, about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are partakers of grace with me. So sometimes people say, well, if you start talking fellowship, you're just saying, let's have all the saved people gather together and forget about everybody else. Look at the next paragraph. In such a partnership as this, we need not worry too much that we will forget the lost and sequester or, or set aside the gospel. Real fellowship will do precisely the opposite. It must. The same Jesus who joins us commissions us. The medium of our relationship is the message of salvation. In other words, the basis of our relationship, the way in which it comes to us, is the gospel. When the fellowship is true... The depth of love for each other is not a symptom of ingrowth, but the final apologetic 
By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. True fellowship not only labors to win the lost, but serves to keep fellow saints saved. So, if our concept of fellowship is, let's create a Christian version of every secular thing that exists in the world, and that Christian version is over here doing its own thing, we're missing some of the point of why fellowship is so important in the context of the church. I'm not saying Christian schools are bad. I'm not saying homeschooling is bad. It's not primarily about schooling kind of thing. But I think back to maybe like the 1970s, there was a big push to have Christian retirement homes and Christian schools and Christian bookstores and Christian whatevers. And there is certainly some value in some of those things to doing things in a Christian way that you can't do in the context of just a normal business. But in pursuing those things, to some extent, we also lost sight of the fact that you have opportunities to be a testimony to your secular co-workers in a secular workplace that you don't have if you only work with believers all day, every day. Are there other ways that if you work in a Christian environment, you can have contact with people who don't know God? Yes, but you have to work a lot harder at it, right? And so, um, we should not think of fellowship in terms of isolation from the lost. We should think of fellowship as going back to his, his opening illustration. Here's this battle, this struggle, this task that we have to do. There's a sense in which fellowship is gathering at halftime, getting ready to go back out there and do the work. There's also a sense in which fellowship is um, random, not random, but sporadic points of contact throughout the week. You call somebody up, you write them a note, you send them a text or an email, uh, you meet up for some purpose. There's, a, there's, this, there's this point of encouragement and help and and spurring one another on to the task, but we don't forget the task, right? So sometimes people have said, like, here's evangelism over here, and here's fellowship over here, and they have nothing to do with each other. But in Philippians 1, Paul is connecting the two and saying the natural outgrowth of our fellowship with one another is if we know Christ and have the blessings of being in Christ, and no longer have the, the uh, disunity and, and fighting and conflict that we had before, what should we want to do? We should want to take that and share that with other people and, and encourage them and, and get them, by God's grace and the work of His Spirit and conversion and all those sorts of things, to share in those same things. But when he says in that last phrase, True fellowship not only labors to win the lost, but serves to keep fellow saints saved. Let's keep pressing this illustration. You're tired. Your foot hurts. You're, uh, you're sore because you got knocked down and bruised during one of those plays on the field. What is your temptation at some point in that game or a future game? I don't feel like doing this anymore. It hurts. I'm sore, it's cold, it's damp. I mean, we used to play soccer, and it would be, it would be cold out there, and it would be slick, and you'd be soaked through, and, and 
you just sometimes say, why am I doing this? You know? Never played football or those other things. But um, you ask yourself, is, is it really worth it when you're preparing to play basketball to run suicides in the, in the gym, this line and back, and that line and back, and that line and back, over and over and over? Like, is it really worth it? Turn to Hebrews 10, first of all. Uh, he talks next in the book about twin texts of fellowship, one of which is probably very familiar and the other one we may not think about as much. And there are certainly more texts that we could use to describe fellowship, but these two summarize to some extent the other ones that we w might think of. Uh, would someone be willing to read uh, Hebrews 10... Um, Let's do 19 to 25, because I think it fits well. Jonathan, thank you. Um, we'll, we'll stop there for now. Um, sometimes we look at this and we're like, show up at church, right? That's kind of our application of that verse. And certainly that's a good starting point, right? But the instruction is that when you do, look past your own nose to the needs of others. There's no how here in the original language. A literal translation is consider each other for love and good deeds. Know each other, get close, stay close, go deep, and consider particular persons and interact with them such that you exhort and inspire them to love and good deeds specifically fitting to their mix. And then the, the quote that's on your page there, as partners under God's word and in prayer, a brother who knows me as me and not generic humanity speaks the truth in love into my life and gives me a word such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear Ephesians 4.29 this is an inestimable grace why do we need to gather and speak to one another instead of just having like a group chat online or watching somebody preach on TV We can't do what these verses are talking about by ourselves in isolation without face-to-face -face contact. Can some of this be done through phone calls and other means of communication? Yes. But if we are not periodically, probably even regularly, looking one another in the eyes, having conversations about serious and important things, it is difficult to accomplish what this text is talking about. And so sometimes we look at this and people say, well, you need to be there every time the church doors are open 
and other people say, what's the minimum number of times I need to be there? That's not really the point. That's like a, how do we check up on whether we're doing it kind of a thing. Well, the point is, encouraging one another as you see the day drawing near. What's the day? Christ coming back. What's important about that day? Regarding this passage. Why do we need to encourage each other? knowing that the day is drawing near. Okay, we might feel like it's a long ways off. What's going to happen on that day? Glory, but also... Okay. Okay, Paul says, on that day when God will judge men by my gospel, right? Or the things that you, we've looked at in First and Second Thessalonians. There is a sense in which there are people in the context of the local church who think that they're right with God and they are not. And there's a sense in which people who are right with God may be tempted to sort of coast to the finish line. And there's a sense in which all of us need to be not thinking this is a, a long ways away, it'll happen someday, I've got plenty of time to get ready, all those sorts of things. Instead, we need to be encouraging one another because we see the day drawing near. This doesn't mean that we think things are difficult in society. That means the world is falling apart. Jesus is coming back tomorrow. Because there's been times in history that are as dark, if not more dark, than what we go through in our average daily lives, right? So this is not like a date-setting kind of a thing. This is a are-we-ready kind of a thing. And so, if, as we looked at this passage, because this has happened... Because all of these are gathered together in one place, encourage one another. The other text is in Hebrews chapter 3. Uh, Hebrews 3, 12 to 13 are the ones that are focused on here in the book. Maybe someone could read 3, 12 to 19. Read that for us. Margaret? Yes. Okay. Um, so one of the points that he makes here, and something that we don't, may not always think about this way, whose job is it if someone is apparently drifting away from the faith to get that person back where they ought to be? Yeah. Sometimes we're like, they're the one that's doing the bad thing. They need to straighten up and fix it, right? But if they are drifting, 
they're not necessarily going to be in a position to want to come back immediately. And a passage like this lays on us the responsibility, it says here, to have enough proximity to him, awareness of him, and regularity with him to spot the drift and war with him for him against the sin. It is not laid on the spiritually weak to muster their will and do the discipline, but it is for the body to take up discipline on behalf of the wanderer, to mediate grace to the struggler, to preempt apostasy by putting words of truth and grace into his open ear hole and praying for the Spirit to make them live. Is this something that I've had a burden about for a while because of having been in other churches and seeing... So you hear of people like these two people are, are getting divorced or this person's done with the church or all these sorts of things, right? We hear those sorts of ideas, those sorts of stories. What are all the steps leading up to that happening? I mean, it's not like you wake up one morning and you're like, you know what? I think I don't want to go to church anymore. That's a series of thoughts and decisions and steps before you get to that point. Um, sometimes it's because difficulty comes into your life. Um, someone you love goes through a mind-bogglingly difficult thing and you say, do I really believe what I say I believe about God? Sometimes it is a series of things coinciding all at once, like we've been talking about in the, the Dynamic Heart book. There's all of these external pressures, and enough of those things pile up, and we come to a point and we say, I don't know. The point that he's making, and I think to some extent, hopefully the point that we see from Hebrews 3 is, if I don't if I don't as the pastor have enough contact with you to know what's going on in your life, and if you individually with each other don't have enough contact to know what's going on in one another's lives, how are we going to be able to help people in the early stages of this inching away from closeness to God and other people in the church? How are we going to help each other at this point before the problem becomes this much worse? And I, do, I don't say this by means of saying that I think we're doing a terrible job at that. I just think it's something that we need to be regularly reminded of because um, it's easy to get lazy for me, for you, for all of us because it takes work. I mean, why do long-distance relationships often not work out? Because they take more effort. If, um, when it comes to a friendship, if you're the one who's always initiating the conversations, do you sometimes get tired of it and say, I'm done with that friendship? Yeah. But in the context of the church, do we have that option? We are not necessarily, um, I think there's a greater responsibility laid on me than on each of you individually where I need to be 
having conversations with all of you collectively in the church. But there's also a sense in which we need to be connecting with each other because if we don't know each other, we don't see these things coming and we can't encourage each other to, to war against sin. I mean, look at the words that he uses in verses 12 and 13. Evil, unbelieving heart that falls away. Encourage as long as it is today, so none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Why today? Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. What's the example that he gives? God did astounding miracles on behalf of the Israelites in bringing them mightily out of Egypt. And many of them still did not believe. It is possible to sit under God's word and hear rich truth from scripture, from song, uh, from testimonies of fellow Christians. It is possible to have all of those benefits and all of those blessings and still wander away. In the case of the Israelites, because they never truly believed, in our case, sometimes for a period of time, or sometimes we haven't truly believed either. And I'm not saying that's the case for anyone necessarily in this room. I'm just saying, sometimes we have this idea that blessings and the right sort of circumstances and all of those sorts of things are, a, um, are an absolute guarantee against apostasy. I used to have this conversation with people that I would go and visit. Uh, older saints whose grandchildren or children or whoever um, went to Christian school, had been in church all their lives, and were off doing their own thing, seemingly have nothing to do with God. And, and they, they would look at me and they'd say, I don't understand. There are two realities. One is, you can pour your heart and soul into the lives of your children, and they can still walk away from God. The other reality is, we as the church can majorly fail in our responsibilities to one another, and that at least in part contributes to that result. And so, I acknowledge those two realities because the person that has done everything before God that they can reasonably do does not need to feel an overwhelming burden of guilt. But if we're being lazy in what God has called us to do, we ought to be spurred on to say, i got to do better by God's grace. And so both of those realities are true. Yes? I know we don't have time to go through this, but I, I think it, it's the difference of the moralistic therapeuticism thinking that doing enough good things is what we're supposed to do as Christians and ultimately learning to love like Christ. Because if we're truly learning to love, we're not only thinking about ourselves, we are thinking about that person that didn't come to church today. We're thinking about the person we haven't seen in three weeks, the person that, you know, something is coming up that's important for them. We're thinking about those things. It's, it's that taking away the, the focus on us and what can we do to help ourselves look better with God and what can we do to help others in just that, that Christ-like mindset. I think the thing that you said about, like, here's a list of things that I ought to do versus showing love, I mean, that's really what it comes down to. You have people in your family. You have a connection with them. 
you show love toward them through things that you do, and hopefully you don't just view it as like, here's a list of stuff I have to do because I'm stuck with them, you know? But um, uh, think about what he says next. Fellowship may be the often forgotten middle child of the spiritual disciplines, but she may save your life in the dark night of your soul. When the desire to avail yourself of hearing his voice in the word has dried up, and when your spiritual energy is gone, to want to speak into his ear in prayer, God sends his body to bring you back. We are for each other an essential element of the good work God has begun in us and promises to bring to completion, Philippians 1.6. When our fellowship is not simply a network of loose Christian relationships, but anchored in a particular covenant community as committed members together in a local outpost of Christ's kingdom, we come closest to experiencing what those first Christians did when people didn't just drift in and out of the community, but were either in or out, and those who were in were pledged to the, be the church for each other through thick and thin. In a few weeks, hopefully, we'll have opportunity to vote on our church commitments. That is our expression of the things that we are saying we will do for one another in light of that paragraph that I just read. It's not an absolute commitment until death do us part, because there are the realities that there are legitimate things that can separate us from a church fellowship uh, with work and other circumstances. But at the same time, it's also not something to be taken lightly. There's some measure of seriousness in our commitment to the church that may not rise quite to the level of a marriage covenant, but certainly is far greater than a membership to Costco, right? And so we're, we're looking at those sorts of ideas. How then practically do we implement some of these things? Just a few quick ideas as we wrap up here. We can discuss them more next week too. Uh, one of the things he really emphasizes at the end of this chapter is the importance of good listening. If we're going to know what's going on in one another's hearts and minds to the extent that that is humanly possible, we need to be good listeners. Six principles about this, connected with James 1.19, but other passages as well. Good listening requires patience. You've got to have time to do it, right? Good at listening is an act of love. We do it because we care about the people we're listening to. Good listening asks perceptive questions. Someone says something and you ask them about it. Sometimes we're prone to let things go because it might be awkward or we're not exactly sure. But someone says something and something sings off about it and we say, so you said this, what, what do you mean by that? And then probe a little bit further to make sure that we understood but also to, to pursue that a little bit. Good listening is ministry. Sometimes we think only speaking is ministry. Sometimes listening is ministry too. Good listening prepares us to speak well. Think about the verses in Proverbs where it says, the one who answers the matter before he's heard it, it's folly and shame. Think about what you're going to say. Think about what they're saying before. And then finally, good listening reflects our relationship with God. So think about, in light of these principles, how you can listen and speak truth in the life of a fellow person in the church this week. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to look at these truths. We pray that you would uh, help us to practice these things, see the importance of them, that our fellowship 
is central to our life as believers in Christ's name. Amen.